if you read enough history or you study enough history or you listen to enough history as, as increasingly it's becoming, a bit of a, a pattern emerges, or I, I've certainly found that, that one does. And that's that nations and politicians and forces will struggle and will toil against each other and will be engaged in what seem like these Herculean, august efforts that, I suppose, by the nature of any book or any podcast or whatever, seem like the absolute focus of everything. And these people seem like the protagonists of that historical moment. And then there are moments when the the camera seems to almost pan out and reveals that everything that you just invested in, the whole human narrative of what you were looking at was just a footnote, was just a little experiment going on in a, in a Petri dish within the turning of the cosmic gears of the universe. An example of this is the Emperor Justinian the Great, one of the, uh, one of the greatest leaders of the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire as it came to be known. Uh, he spent the best part of, of his four-decade reign trying to restore the glory of Rome and trying to restore the hold of Rome over the whole of the Mediterranean. So that was in recapturing Italy and actually getting as far as bits of Spain, uh, recapturing North Africa and Sicily and all sorts. And after he's been doing this, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a pretty epic sort of struggle, the Justinianic plague sweeps in and absolutely decimates the whole population of the empire, sends the whole empire into a demographic decline, and essentially makes everything that he's done seem sort of irrelevant. Similarly, uh, I suppose a more familiar one to a lot of us will be the First World War. It breaks out in these, these great nations of Europe and the entire world spanning these vast empires wrestle for four years in this great struggle that will claim the lives of about 20 million people. And then a transmutation of a virus causes a flu epidemic for the next two years that kills more than twice as many. And the trials and tribulations of mankind end up being eclipsed by Mother Nature. And it's one of, I suppose, the many allegorical reason, readings that you could take from the Titanic. You know, the first half of the film is about all of these little dramas, struggles, romances and so forth that take place in this very complex social life of this big ship. And then the second half of the film is about how a completely random iceberg is going to render all of that totally irrelevant. And the temptation from this is to think that the human struggle then doesn't matter to become sort of nihilistic about it. But I don't think that's a very useful response. Um, and also it wouldn't make for a very interesting podcast. It's only the dramas and the romances on board the Titanic that make the fact that it hit an iceberg interesting. The second half of the film, the Titanic, wouldn't be very interesting if if we didn't have any knowledge of what those people were doing or who those people were, we didn't have any investment in them. Rather, the, the iceberg recontextualizes those struggles that we have seen and, and often serves as a sort of humbling reminder to not give too much pomp and importance and significance to these narratives that we ascribe to history. Welcome to the final episode of season one of Pedestals. Kiss me hardy. Um, Lord Nelson. Nelson. Yeah, Lord Nelson. Nelson. He was a very small man, diminutive little creature. Short ass of a high podium. Um, yeah, Grandpa is always going on about it. Um, now you've got short man Nelson complex. What?
Was he missing an arm? Also, did he get an arrow in his eye in the battle? I seem to remember him losing an eye. And he lost an eye. An anti-establishment figure. Was it in the 1800s? He's on top of a column in Trafalgar Square. I mean, was this the Battle of Waterloo, I think? Fought the French, I think. We won there, right? Big naval victory, was it? I mean, was he fighting Napoleon? I think he was fighting Napoleon. The main thing I know about Trafalgar is it's part of the shipping forecast, so it must be in the English Channel. The outrageous ongoing affair with Lady Hamilton. My friend's beautiful standard poodle was actually called Nelson. Also, did he have a famous horse with a funny name? Trafalgar? Now, at the end of the last episode, I left you with uh, Nelson's final words um, in the all-op deck of the victory and the remains of the battle, of these floating hulks uh, amidst a gently rising sea. Now, as a final accounting from the battle, uh, there was about 2,000 total dead, about 1,500 French and Spanish and about 500 British, many, many more uh, wounded and casualties, 21 French and Spanish ships had been captured. One ship had been destroyed. No British ships had been lost. As an accounting, just an interesting little tidbit that I found that I think uh, demonstrates the ferocity of this battle, the Victory, the the British flagship, expended about six tonnes of gunpowder over the course of of the day-long battle, and the whole British fleet fired over 30 tonnes of shot. Now, ultimately, as you you can... probably calculate from that 21 French and Spanish ships being captured. This is a total reversal of the the number game that I had outlined in in the first episode. That numbers game of essentially how many ships of the line do you have? And the the problem that the British were facing was that with a a chance victory, if the French can concentrate themselves in such a way as to either capture 10, 15 British ships or just to push their way into the channel, then a small margin of, of, of British advantage would just be wiped out. And in doing this, Nelson has sort of rendered that uh, unlikely now to happen. 21 of the relatively limited number of French and Spanish ships are now in British hands. So he's been massively successful despite having died. He has definitely achieved exactly what he set out to do. Admiral Collingwood, uh, who was Nelson's second in command and who took command of the British fleet after Nelson's death, later said, quote, I would rather fight another battle than pass through such a week as followed it. End quote. Nelson's last ever order to Hardy was, quote, anchor and do not throw me overboard, end quote. His order to anchor was, was given essentially in anticipation of the weather coming in from the west. Uh, the, the account given by his doctor as he was carried below actually has him, as he's being carried, noticing uh, the barometer falling and and the telltales on the on the ship's sails sort of uh, presaging this this awful storm. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but the barometers in the ships had all dropped. It was very clear that the, the same light breeze that had initially allowed the battle to take place the day before was the beginning of a, a truly enormous storm. Nelson knew the British fleet and its captured prizes would be in a really awful shape after the battle, and so he ordered Collingwood that all ships should drop anchor and they should attempt to ride out the storm and to stay off the coast, where without masts, without sails, without rudders, they would just be smashed to pieces on the rocks. I don't know if this needs stating, might be stating massively the obvious, but but um, 
a wooden ship coming up against rocks is, is sort of the end of it. Um, and particularly in storm, as with a sailing ship, you don't have a motor to go against the wind. So if the wind is blowing onto shore and it's really stormy, that's really bad news. So anchoring is kind of the only way to ride it out. Fatefully, uh, Collingwood actually disregarded this order. As the evening set in uh, on the day of the battle, Collingwood ordered the remains of the fleet to crawl westwards, away from the dangerous coast. So there, there was some, some sensible rationale to that uh, order. As the weather worsened, he appears to have changed his mind, though he ordered the ships to drop anchor uh, eventually. Only at that point it was a bit too late, um, and he actually found that many ships had lost their cables during the fighting and were unable to comply. This is a reminder again that it's like all of the stuff that you might need to keep safe has also just been through a battle. So the cables were these incredibly long, strong ropes uh, kept on the ship's lower decks. Lots of them would have been blasted away. Lots of them would have been lost or cut or, you know, all sorts of chaos was unfolding. By the morning, the whole fleet was scattered. For the next week or so, uh, what had started as that slight freshening breeze that had allowed the British to advance at a walking pace on the 21st became this cataclysmic storm. Afterwards, it was actually reckoned to be one of the worst of the entire 19th century. Um, It was so large as to actually be felt in the English Channel. The Bell's Weekly Messenger, which obviously keeps good records because I was able to to find... uh, Uh, some of their archived material. Um, It's a newspaper in in Plymouth called it a hurricane and it actually reported that it had swept a dockyard night watchman to his death in the river estuary. So um, it was a pretty serious storm and it it became a case of just every ship for itself really. As the the fleet had become scattered they were unable to help each other largely. So each ship just attempted to limp into any safe port that it could. Those that were less damaged Uh, attempted to tow those without the means of sailing. And there's testimony from a French captain who surrendered at Trafalgar and whose ship was being sailed by British sailors. He said, quote, The British seamen immediately set to work to shorten sail and reef in topsails with as much regularity and order as if their ships had not been fighting a dreadful battle. We were all amazement, wondering what the English sailor could be made of, end quote. And you do have to bear in mind that complete state that these ships would have been in they are floating shoeboxes really no masts no sails rudders anchors they would have had to try to rig up what spare sails they did on the kind of stubs of masts that they could find try to jury rig up masts um all of them filled with holes above and below the water line all of them leaking water and each filled most significantly probably with a couple of hundred horribly wounded men missing limbs and you know bleeding out and all sorts of awful stuff that you have to tend to them they can't help sail the ship and they're in probably the most dangerous part of the ship that may well be slowly filling up with water uh lieutenant uh, nicholas of the uh, belle isle spoke about the terror of the storm quote the ship rolled in the trough of the sea in such a manner that the water came in through the ports and over the waist-high hammock nettings and the shot out of the racks were thrown about the decks upon which the men tired and exhausted were lying At one o'clock the roar of the elements continued, and every roll of the sea seemed to the affrighted imagination to be the commencement of the breakers. In the battle the chances were equal, and it was possible for many to escape, but shipwreck in such a hurricane was certain destruction to all. What he's describing there is trying to sleep through it, essentially, when there's so much noise, and every noise sounds like it's the waves on the actual rocks of Spain that you know are somewhere out there 
in the darkness. Uh, the Redoutab, which had been that ship that so fiercely battled with the victory that we recounted uh, in the last episode that had borne the sharpshooter that killed Nelson, was wrecked itself with huge loss of life. The Santissima Trinidad, the biggest ship in the world at the time, which had been captured, the greatest prize really that the British had, had taken, uh, began to founder. These are the words of uh, Lieutenant John Edwards, who was aboard as one of the, one of the prize crew. Quote, "'Tis impossible to describe the horrors the morning presented. Nothing but signals of distress flying in every direction, guns firing, and so many large ships driving on shore without being able to render them the least assistance. After driving about four days without any prospect of saving the ship or the gale abating, the signal was made to destroy the prizes. We had no time before to remove the prisoners, and it now became a most dangerous task. No boats could lie alongside. We got under her stern, and the men dropped in by ropes. But what a sight when we came to remove the wounded, which were between three and four hundred. We had to tie the poor mangled wretches round their waists all where we could, and lower them down into a tumbling boat, some without arms, others no legs, lacerated all over in the most dreadful manner. About ten o'clock we got all out to about thirty-three or four, which I believe it was impossible to remove without instant death. The water was now at the pilot deck, the weather dark and boisterous, taking in tons at every roll. End quote. A sailor aboard the Revenge, uh, who rescued many of these escaping the sinking ship, says, quote, On the last boat's load leaving the ship, the Spaniards who were left on board appeared on the gangway in the ship's side, displaying their bags of dollars and doubloons and e eagerly offering them as a reward for saving them from the expected and unavoidable wreck. But however well inclined we were, it was not in our power to rescue them, or it would have been effected without the proffered bribe. End quote. And from these two accounts, we can really cut through the romanticism and the, the poetry of the statuary and the, the rhetoric and the poems that, that we get with these, with these events to the truth that quotations like this make, I think, blindingly obvious that what these people went through was as hellish as any soldier's experience. It's very redolent of the trench poets in the First World War and the diary accounts we get from the First World War of, of soldiers, you know, hearing wounded enemies begging for water in no man's land and all of that sort of stuff and just because it's that little bit more removed and the language appears a little more sort of constrained i think the humanity of these things do do definitely percolate through um lieutenant john edwards there was was recounting how after struggling desperately to save basically three or four hundred wounded that's french and spanish wounded most likely uh they have to just leave 30 of them on the ship which definitely would have meant killing them uh, just to wait as the water was rising up around them. And then the rescuers aboard the Revenge have to watch as the Spanish come to the railings of the of the Santissima Trinidad with their life savings, saying basically come and rescue us for something the British simply don't have the resources to do, cannot do. And I think an element of this that's that's truly heartbreaking is their their evident distress, the, the, the evident distress of the British of not being able to rescue their their erstwhile enemies. And I, I, I think that's testament to what, what I was talking about, I think, either in the second or the third episode, that really all of these sailors were much more a part of a community of sailors than they were of of, of national uh, bodies. And they, 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 I think a lot of them felt a huge amount more in common with the, the sailors of the enemy fleet than they would have with a, you know, a farmer from Shropshire or something. If you do need a small bit of cheering up from these quite grim uh, accounts... Uh, the Santissima Trinidad's cat was saved. Um, it was seen running alongside the ship's side and a, a boat went back for it. 
the the prize crews that the British put aboard uh, some of the ships that they captured, such as those on the, the Algeciras, were actually outnumbered by the prisoners that they had below decks. I think in the case of the Algeciras, it was like 10 to 1 in terms of how many British sailors were on as compared to, to the French prisoners. And during the storm, they actually just turned the ship back over to the French prisoners. They let them go in order that they could help to crew the ship and to keep them afloat. So an effect of the of the storm really is to turn these men who were locked in this fight to the death a few days ago into comrades, really. A wounded seaman uh, on the, the Spartiat, which had been wrecked, uh, reminisced, quote, One of the Spaniards, seeing the state I was in, was kind enough to get two or three more of his companions and lifted me up in one of the bullock carts and covered me up with one of their great ponchos, end quote. And that's him being rescued, you know, as he essentially washes up on the Spanish shore. Remember from the first episode, Spain has flipped. Spain is no longer a neutral country. Spain is, a, is, a, is now an enemy state and the entire coastline that they're close to is Spanish. Uh, but the Spanish in particular, who were quite reluctant allies of the French, really were more of a sort of a sort of junior partner in something the French were kind of bullying them into. Really, they took it on themselves to to salvage whatever life could be saved from the storm, regardless of the nationality. It was said that the people of southern Spain all came out to help, and every church and hospital was filled with the wounded of all three nations. And more broadly, the, the storm, I think, just gives this whole thing the character of a great human tragedy rather than a national triumph or defeat. And we've kind of got to hold on to that because I think... Well, that's something that we'll definitely discuss later on as to as to exactly the place this holds in our in our national memories. An Englishman in Cadiz puts this quite well. He says, quote, I mounted on the cross trees of a mast which had been thrown ashore and casting my eyes over the ocean, beheld at a great distance several masts and portions of wreck still floating about. As the sea was now almost calm with a slight swell, the effect produced by these objects had in it something of a sublime melancholy and touched the soul with a remembrance of the sad vicissitudes of human affairs. End quote. Lieutenant John Edwards, who I quoted from earlier, uh, he made reference to being given the order to scuttle the prizes. Collingwood eventually gave the order the prizes that couldn't be saved, rather than falling back into French or Spanish hands, should be purposefully sunk. Now, of the 21 ships that were eventually captured at Trafalgar in the following days, four were kept by the British, two were recaptured by the French, and the other 15 either blew up, sunk, or were smashed to pieces on the rocky Spanish coast. The other side to the story after the battle, um, in many ways the sort of the opposite of the, uh, the, the uncaring whims of Mother Nature, is the much more personal story, uh, individual story, of one captain on his little ship, and the continuation, really, of the narrativized version of this story. And it's a chain of events that has lived on, really, as part of the legend, the Trafalgar Dispatch. Now, after any great victory throughout history, delivery of the news of that victory to the, you know, the, the government of that or the king or whatever, the powers that be, let's say, um, has been an opportunity for the messenger. And I think this has a, a curious role of, of cementing a narrativization of events almost as if the actual event hasn't really occurred until the news has been delivered, until people have been told. And I'm not going to get into, you know, trees falling in forests or cats in boxes or any of those philosophical conundrums, uh, but there is a certain philosophical layer to this. Sort of, ha has an event occurred if it hasn't been understood by a broader general public? The day after the battle, on the 22nd of October, 
Collingwood wrote what has come to be known as the Trafalgar Dispatch. And it's an account of, of the action of what's happened at Trafalgar for the Admiralty. And then, you know, from them, they'll pass it on to the British government. And he gave it to the the British man, but he's curiously, he's named Captain Laponetier, which sounds very French, who commanded essentially the fastest ship that the fleet had, the quite adorably named HMS Pickle. Um, and he charges uh, Laponetier with, with, uh, with delivering it to London as soon as possible. And this is a really big opportunity for Laponetier. He, he, can, he can expect probably a few hundred pounds and a promotion as a reward for delivering this news. And he immediately embarks on what becomes a real saga. The, uh, the Pickle was a, a really small ship and it had to weather this huge storm, just like all the other, you know, the, the, the big battleships that were out there as well. And she was taking on water and she, she actually threw many of her guns overboard to lighten her load. That's how important this kind of this mission was. Um, in, the ba- in the Bay of Biscay, the kind of bite in between France and Spain on the Atlantic coast, he crosses a ship called the Nautilus, which is under Captain Sykes, uh, and he exchanges the news with him. And the dastardly Captain Sykes then immediately turns his ship around and tries to beat Laponetier to London, realising how valuable this piece of information is. And despite the storm that's consuming the fleet down off southern Spain, both ships end up basically becalmed off Falmouth. They don't have any they don't have any wind. Laponetier orders his men out in the boats to actually drag the pickle into Falmouth by rowing rowing it in. After landing in the town, he makes a non-stop 37-hour journey by the post carriages to London who is and he's being pursued by Sykes who's by some reports half an hour behind him on reaching London the weather takes another turn and the fog rolls in on the city and the and it was so thick that night the coachmen were actually leading had to lead their horses by the reins holding lanterns this mist I guess probably slowed Laponetier somewhat but um but but he managed to fight through it it delayed Sykes who was pursuing on the outskirts of the city much more so he presumably got lost or something and about 1 a.m. on the 6th of November a mud-spattered Laponetier arrived to the admiralty and he wakes up the secretary who is there and the dispatch is immediately communicated to the first lord and to the prime minister so what was the resolution of this battle? What was the, the conclusion that Collingwood wanted to communicate to the Admiralty? Firstly, and, and well, significantly, because it is first, Collingwood's dispatch actually begins with the words, the ever-to-be-lamented death of Vice Admiral Lord Viscount Nelson, who in the late conflict with the enemy fell in the hour of victory. That's, that's literally the first. So that this was seen undoubtedly by Collingwood as one of the most significant significant outcomes of the battle and it was and it was definitely seen as that that way by by much of much of britain and across europe uh secondly that 2000 men had died during the battle uh obviously this isn't in the d- dispatch but another 3000 die in the storm afterwards thirdly the possibility of an invasion of the british isles by napoleon has really been completely removed at this point the interesting thing is Arguably, that possibility had already been removed because Napoleon had already packed off the the uh, you know the the invasion force. The Grand Army had already begun heading east in Napoleon's great drive for well, first to knock out uh, the uh, Austrians, but then also to, to to move into Russia. However, this is really followed by a, a century of complete British dominance at sea. So that is significant. Fourthly, and really easily forgotten, the the 15,000 sailors of the British fleet who had fought the French and the Spanish 
and then fought this storm, were really left with nothing to show for it. They had to sink the prizes. You may remember from probably the first or second episode, I detailed the prize system that, that sailors made a, or, or, or could hope to make a good amount of money by capturing enemy ships and receiving a portion of the sale of that ship back to the British government. Collingwood had ordered all the prizes sunk. Well, most of them, four of them ended up being being kept. Approximately, and I know the, these things are always a bit difficult to dice with, but about four million pounds worth of prize money had been sent to the bottom of the ocean. For most of the surviving officers, this would have meant a pretty tidy sum of money. And for most of the sailors, it would have meant more money than they had ever seen. And it it would have been the kind of money that would allow them to move home and set up in a business and, and do whatever, which I'm sure many of them wanted to do. And instead, many of them actually languished in the, the hulks that they had fought in for weeks and months after the battle like literally not not being taken ashore that they eventually managed to get back to the English Channel didn't quite know what to do with them yet to be demobilised whatever and they still they have to hang around in these these kind of battle blasted ships and as so often happens they really weren't taken care of properly by the system that they had served which we hear about all the time about you know with our, our own veterans in a neat sort of illustration of this actually uh, John Room who you may remember from the from episode 3 but he was the man who hoisted the signal England expects that every man will do his duty. He had been pressed into service against his will, not that long before Trafalgar actually, and he actually deserted just shortly after the battle, and he disappeared entirely. Uh, He was actually rediscovered, interestingly, uh, kind of completely penniless on the streets of London 40 years later, and he was made, they kind of tried to make something of him. Um, But that really illustrates the whole thing. A man who didn't want to be there in the first place fights a huge battle, ironically hoisting this signal that says patriotic you know every man will do his duty um doesn't get given anything for it really uh, and then deserts reactions to nelson's death sort of ripple out from the all-op deck of the victory straight after his passing the uh, large parts of um of his hair and his clothing are almost immediately taken each man who visited his body uh, kind of privately, it's thought it snipped off a lock of hair or a corner of his shirt or whatever. And I think there's a a kind of macabre beauty to this, despite how weird it sounds. Uh, Beatty, who's the surgeon who who you know initially is looking after him, he actually tries to stop it, but is totally unsuccessful. And these are these aren't you know ordinary seamen; these are like officers and people coming down. He's completely unsuccessful in stopping this from happening, and I can't help but think he may have have seen that there was as, as much as it was kind of wrong that there was a rightness to this that the tokens are, are kind of taken away from the body from the way that people react with a kind of a sentiment that turns what might look like a horrible feeding frenzy into into a rather kind of poetic absorption of his person into the community of people who he perhaps had the the most meaningful relationship with who were the sailors of his fleet who he had spent all of his life from the age of 12 you know bar whatever six months when he lost an arm with i suppose there's something very it's very sort of unchristian there's something quite sort of pagan about it um and almost cannibalistic but again that i think for me sums up how this this community kind of is something slightly anti-establishment something slightly transgressive uh, in the way that you know the the sons of the sea operate Responses to Nelson's death uh, in the fleet amongst the men and the officers 
are, are well, are pretty telling. Uh, an officer aboard the Belial says, quote, Lord Nelson is no more, was repeated with such despondency and heartfelt sorrow that everyone seemed to mourn a parent. All exertion was suspended. The veteran sailor indulged in silent grief, and some eyes evinced that tenderness of heart which is often concealed under the roughest exterior, end quote. A sailor named Sam, I don't I somehow don't have any more information about him than that, but named Sam aboard aboard the Royal Sovereign, says, quote, I never set eyes on him myself, for which I am both sorry and glad, for to be sure I should like to have seen him. But then all the men in our ship who have seen him are such soft toads they have done nothing but blast their eyes and cry ever since he was killed. God bless you. Chaps that fought like the devil sit down and cry, end quote. Nelson's body actually ends up being preserved in a in a cask of brandy so that it can be taken back to England for burial. You, you'll remember that one of his final orders to, to Hardy was that he, um, he didn't want to be thrown overboard. And it's considered that uh, his body might be removed from the crippled victory to a much faster frigate, you know, a ship like the Pickle or something which could spirit him back home as quickly as possible, mind the pun. Uh, but it's reckoned actually that the men of the ship would have mutinied if... The, the, the perceived honour of bringing their leader home was taken away from them. So eventually it was considered right that, uh, that, that Nelson would be left on board the Victory and would limp home that way. After news of uh, his death arrived back in England with the dispatch, bells were sounded in mourning across the country. The Times reported, uh, quote, there was not a man who did not think that the life of the hero of the Nile was too great a price for the capture of 20 sail of French and Spanish men of war no ebullitions of, tr of popular transport, no demonstrations of public joy mark this great and important event. The honesty and manly feeling of the people appeared as it should have done. They felt an inward satisfaction at the triumph of their favourite arms. They mourned with all the sincerity and poignancy of domestic grief their hero slain. End quote. Lord Malmesbury uh, observed, quote, every common person in the street speaking first of their sorrow for him and then of the victory. End quote. So it really is, I mean, uh, as I said, Collingwood mentions his death first. It, it really is a national tragedy before it is a national triumph, which is significant. And there's a similarity in how public uh, an event this is uh, to the death of Princess Diana. I think, it, well, you, you'll hear in terms of what I'm about to report how, how similar it becomes, this performative public grief that follows it. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the, the poet and the well, writer of, of all stripes, um, who actually was in Sicily at the time, reported, quote, Never can I forget the sorrow and consternation which lay on every countenance. Numbers stopped and shook hands with me, because they had seen the tears on my cheek and conjectured that I was an Englishman, and several, as they held my hand, burst themselves into tears, end quote. And the Sicilians do have a, a, a specific sort of reason to feel connection to, to Nelson. Remember, he had, he had been there. Uh, between Naples and, and all parts of Sicily, kind of making sure that they were kept safe and so forth. But 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 so it, it still has an international character, though. This is this is something that is unfolding across Europe. The nation held a, a, a very the, the British nation that is held a very theatrical sort of morning. We had black crepe armbands. Uh, shop windows were all draped in in black. The theatre at Covent Garden erected a huge N for Nelson, uh, picked out in red lamps. Uh, the cast of the show that was on at the time actually finished off the performances by leading the audience and singing Rule Britannia, whilst a giant portrait of Nelson descended uh, across the stage. Um, there were kind of prop clouds on wires surrounding this portrait as though he was sort of floating up. 
into into heaven. Uh, the German theatre, not sure what that is actually, I'm not sure it exists anymore, but the German theatre made a huge billboard of the personification of Britannia. You, you know the one with her shield and her spear and her pet lion, holding a portrait of Nelson, saying the line, Victorious Nelson, I will avenge thy death. Aside from demonstrating that the world of show business has always been quick to make everything about themselves, uh, this does underscore a level of national distress on par, I think, with the, with the death of Princess Diana. It becomes this kind of self-perpetuating, I don't want to say hysteria because I don't, I don't it's, it's not about a qualitative kind of judgment call about it, but it is very out of character. It's, I mean, the, to be honest, the, the British outpouring of grief after the death of Princess Diana was, was pretty out of character, and that's in 1990s Britain. We're talking here about just pre-Victorian Britain, you know, which is going to be a bit more tightly buttoned up. And it was, you know, it was, it was a pretty emotional, sort of unusually emotional uh, event. It took almost two months for Nelson's body to actually get back to England and to get ready for the funeral. Uh, I imagine it wasn't looking too great, uh, despite the brandy. Allegedly, um, over 30,000 people gathered to view the body and the mob was actually declared a danger and was dispersed. Uh, and I found a report that a man actually lost his eye in the press. Uh, he was pushed up against a fence, but like railing or something, and it popped his eyeball out. So there you go. So it did cause a, a sort of um, almost a riot on the streets. The funeral itself, uh, like the eventual statue, like Nelson's Column, could be viewed as a, a piece of sort of public theatre. It took place in a purpose-built amphitheatre for 7,000 mourners. It was the great and the good of the country. Everyone was there who was anyone. Uh, the captured Villeneuve, the admiral of the French fleet, was actually amongst them, which in itself is there's a sort of, that's kind of multi-layered, almost like, you know, like uh, Caractacus getting getting brought back into Rome after after his resistance in Britain, a sort of that he has to look on at the, the glory of his, of his uh, vanquisher. Uh, there's a big band. His sarcophagus, which is a proper sarcophagus, it's not, you know, we're not just talking about a coffin here. A sarcophagus descends on a sort of hydraulic contraption through the stage and goes into the crypt where it's going to rest. The exception to this pomp, or maybe if we think about it more cynically, a sort of a, a cynically employed part of this of this theatricality, was the sailors of the victory, or, or a selection of the sailors of the victory carrying the battle-scarred banner of the ship, his, the colours from the ship, the Union Jack, to drape over the coffin. Uh, Jane Codrington, who is the wife of, of Captain Codrington, who, who's the, the captain of the Orion, uh, said of the funeral, quote, The part that spoke to my heart most powerfully was when the sailors of the victory brought in Nelson's colours, and this I attribute to its being the only thing that was Nelson. The rest was so much of the herald's office. I do not might mean to find fault with this, because it was a necessary pomp to satisfy the nation. End quote. Now, what she means by a pomp to satisfy the nation could most obviously be seen as they need an outpouring to mourn the loss of this great hero. There's a slightly more cynical way to see it. Um, the, well, as I said, Napoleon's big army that was going to invade England has, has headed east before Trafalgar, long before Trafalgar even happens, is already heading east. And around the same time, beats the Austrians and Russians spectacularly at Ulm and Austerlitz. Austerlitz is seen as Napoleon's kind of greatest victory, and it is... Well, Austerlitz is, is, is the battle that destroys the Holy Roman Empire, one of the kind of oldest 
political, national, whatever bodies within within Europe, and a hugely powerful thing. So it's a really big turning point. And whilst this is whilst Trafalgar's playing out, which we the British see as massively significant, arguably a far more far more significant event at Austerlitz and Ulm as well, which is a kind of connected battle, has taken place, in which Napoleon has completely scattered the forces that are arrayed against him. And as Pitt saw it, these defeats guaranteed really another decade of a horribly and costly, uncertain war that's been going on in Europe. And we saw in miniature what these pieces of theatre are, are for in terms of national purpose uh, back in episode one. Nelson had done this kind of disastrous attack on, on Tenerife, if you remember. It was where he lost his arm. And it had gone horribly wrong and it was a really bad bit of press. But the story that got foregrounded back in England was Nelson's stepson gallantly improvising a tourniquet and, and, and saving Nelson's life rather than the botched assault. It's a kind of cover-up job, a kind of distraction piece. And now, rather than, you know, being a kind of mournful celebration of this of this triumph and a genuine outpouring of grief, I think this funeral and the, the, the cost and the expense that was put into it, I think is a, is a theatrical production, in, with my most cynical head on, designed to redirect the British attention away from the very real, very bad news that they were going to continue to be in a war for another decade, which is a really awful thing. <laughs> and instead, to control the sort of outpouring of ultimately a fairly, a fairly benign and a unifying feeling of public mourning at this celebrity's death following this, this great victory. And I'm not going to attempt to relate that to Princess Diana's death. You can do that for yourself. That pretty much concludes the narrative events um, behind Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar. Any end is obviously arbitrary, but we've got to draw the line somewhere. I'm now going to spend the rest of this episode reflecting on what all of this means and what we might make of it now. As this is about what average people make of these events, I've included a chat uh, that I had with a friend of mine who has listened to the podcast up to this point. So he's clued up, but he's by no means an expert. Uh, he is from the north of this country, so I have now doubled how representative this podcast is at a single stroke. Um, so firstly, I'd just like to thank my pal Ben here for coming on the podcast. Hi, Ben. Hello. I just want to ask, uh, my, as a, just a kind of starting question, uh, before this, uh, you know, at the very start of this series, um, I, I did a little overview of what a load of my mates all kind of thought of the legacy of Lord Nelson or what, what the monument or the event historically meant to them. Mm. So I know it's really difficult because now you've listened to mm. most of the content of this series, but what was your what was your impression, if you can remember, before you listened? Yeah, I, to be completely honest, I would say I was on the ignorant end of the little clips that we've heard. I reckon, I knew he was in Trafalgar Square. Yep. Couldn't have told you where Trafalgar was. Couldn't have necessarily told you Trafalgar was a battle. Uh -huh. I would have been able to tell you... I would have probably said he was an admiral and in charge of a ship. <laughs> and I would have said that he didn't have an arm. I didn't know about his eye. Oh, all right. Cool. And then, in, so in terms of then, I suppose, uh, what it... Like, more broadly, I suppose, what your associations are with him as a person, what qualities ideas and what does it mean weirdly 
an ex-girlfriend of mine's father yeah. was obsessed with Nelson. <laughs> and I think that kind of coloured... Was he a difficult dad to me? <laughs> <laughs> he was... Well, but exactly. So I think I wrote, roped it in with kind of being an interest of older people. So like kind of like traditional values. Yes. Quite austere. Yeah. And serious. And yeah. to do with reading big heavy books mm-hmm. so sort of not for the not for the modern world or not not relevant to the modern world yeah to some extent yeah. Or, or kind of old old traditional values of kind of stiff upper lip yeah i knew that he was clearly very accomplished in mm-hmm. his military i kind of gleaned that he was accomplished in yeah. his military victories yeah and i would guess that had something to do with some kind of innovation or ingenuity uh-huh. but I didn't know any specifics that's an interesting one that actually occurred to me but um Weirdly, for a very militarily successful nation, I can't actually think of that many very accomplished military leaders. Mm. Off the top of my head. I don't know. Can, can uh, If you can't, I can't. No, <laughs> no I just genuinely, I, like, I guess there's older ones. It's like Henry V or whatever mm. is like great leaders. Churchill? Churchill, yes, but not. I mean, he, he had a career in the military, but I don't know how I actually distinguished his personal. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I think as well, like, the I didn't mix up them up, mm-hmm. but I think our obviously World War Two is far more taught more prevalently and far yes. more prevalent in our consciousnesses yeah. than the Nelson. And I think maybe our impression, maybe my impression of him also coloured my impression of Nelson. Like you kind of lump them together as British leaders in a battle war setting. I might have thought, oh, okay, yeah. And there is some similarities, I suppose, isn't there? Churchill and Nelson, mm. yes. What stoicism? Stoicism, guess a bit of cult of personality. Yeah, and and myth as opposed to reality as well yeah. in terms of their 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 legacy. So maybe that's why Nelson's kind of sustained a little bit more, I guess, because there's nobody to replace him necessarily. Do you think as well? There's, I, I, I is there an unwillingness? Are we less willing as a public to like let figures like that in? Oh yeah, okay. Well, that was that was one of okay. This is um this is a question I was going to ask later, but I think it's interesting now. Why do you think we don't have? military heroes like this mm. anymore because i couldn't name any of our top military brass now yeah that's true i think it it speaks to something i think it's obviously our like modern sensibilities about war and conflict because mm-hmm. i was going to say as a general public we don't would feel like somehow like macabre or mm-hmm. yeah maybe there's no such thing as a good war anymore however i guess you've got thatcher in the falklands and the kind of gulf yeah. war but i guess the president and the prime minister, respectively, took credit for those, didn't they? Yes, yes. I, again, I couldn't tell you. You'd, I think you need to be a Falklands War buff or a kind of modern military buff to know who. I know the SAS were kind of involved in quite a big way, but I couldn't tell you any personalities from it. So that's. Is it also to do with, you know, you've talked a lot about with Nelson and with other historical figures like Caesar, the kind of importance of PR and the importance of. Mm reporting on and reporting back of what's occurred and painting yourself in a certain light and the importance of that and perhaps that tradition has kind of died yeah yeah no I think I think yeah I think that might be very likely because yeah there's this I mean it happens with definitely with Nelson with Caesar and the the second world world war generals have quite an interesting particularly in the, the American ones there's quite a lot of British distaste for the American generals practice of having like a press corps with them all the time they turn up at any event or whatever and will they need to you know all pose and all do the thing and it's not I think the general the general outlook wasn't that it was like 
them they were glory seeking although some of them probably were macarthur got kind of accused of that quite a lot but that it was understood that that was gen- that was like the need that was how that you need to keep the public engaged and you need to keep them behind like a an image and buying war bonds and all of that kind of stuff so that was a big part of it maybe we're just not in like enough of a total war situation now that we would ever need it's almost like with modern wars we don't really need to yeah. after the initial declaration has happened after the initial you know it's whatever tony blair's got us into the second gulf war mm-hmm. we kind you know the powers that be kind of want the public kind of out of it because it's no yeah. longer interesting to them or no longer helpful to have the public that involved yeah mm. and i think um it seems to me that there was kind of like listening to your podcast the kind of difference between what it means to the men on the ships and what it means to the nation mm-hmm. um what was interesting to me, a question I had for you, is mm-hmm. this is, it is related. So perhaps the reason is that we don't celebrate our generals and so forth anymore is because have we moved beyond the ability to kind of deify someone in that role? Because it seems like Nelson was kind of roped in with an idea of an abstraction of everything that it was to be British, as yeah. he talks about the underdog. Yeah. Discipline, kind of, but also this kind of like benevolent, he had this kind of like benevolence of a god as well, wasn't he? He was very like was a gentleman, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder whether in the public imagination we were not capable of deifying or kind of abstracting out a sense of nation or a sense mm-hmm. of pride in in that. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're quite right about the, the deification thing. I think the benevolent thing is really important in the way that he's lasted. Because even if you just look at pictures of him, he's um, he doesn't look like... He doesn't look capable of great violence, I think, mm-hmm. which is... is I mean, partially kind of suiting him to the age, but I think has suited him to the age since, you know, the the age of Aquarius, you know, the kind of, well, and, and actually subsequent to that, the kind of messianic imagery that comes to surround him. And he looks kind of quite kind of wan and <laughs> effete and, mm-hmm. and not, you know what I mean? So, yeah. and I don't know if that's just a genuine, like a contingent, coincidental aspect of his character and that's actually how he was and that and that just happens to have worked for him or if that was a more sort of conscious way of 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 showing him in order to produce something more followable for the sailors and also more uh, kind of uh, lovable for the nation right so so like an almost feminine I think that, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's an element. I mean, it's difficult to know with kind of cultural relativism as to whether or not we're looking at gentlemen of the yeah. late 18th, early 19th century as because they kind of are by our modern standards because mm. they wear their hair in a certain way and they, they wear leggings. If we're looking at a more the, the eternal feminine values of, of being caring and being soft and mm-hmm. um, emotional, which he is as well. You know, we, his last words are very emotional. Also, to go back to your question, uh-huh. so the potential to be, and the potential to be a celebrity, and the potential is kind of vastly smaller than now. I actually used that word, I think, in the first episode, celebrity, as a quite kind of consciously, or I had to think about it a little bit, because the history of celebrity is an idea. Mm. And I think the definition, which has broadly been rounded out, is basically that the public are interested in a person um, aside from their actual, the thing that they're doing. They're interested in the personal life of yeah. that person. By by which definition, I think people like, like Shakespeare isn't a celebrity. Sure. Even though he is popular within his lifetime, and he's well known and so forth, people aren't really very interested. It's only afterwards that we mm. care about Anne Hathaway yeah, and stuff like fair. that. Um, or pe- other people that you would think of as a celebrity. And that even goes, I think, possibly to say like Henry VIII wasn't a celebrity because his 
people only cared about him as far as he was the king. And that's quite a broad reach, you know, who he's married to and so forth. You would think, well, that's a celebrity thing. But actually it's not because they're only really interested in it as it pertains to the succession and whatever, mm. the English Reformation mm. and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. So, But I do think that, that Nelson reaches that threshold definitely within his lifetime, partially because of the affair he has with, with Lady Hamilton mm. is a big part of it. People actually really love him for it, although it actually kind of damages his career. A question I thought, listening to all of the, um, the verbatim accounts of soldiers mm-hmm. and sailors and men on board the ships, I was interested that there was a real lack of, maybe you admit, I just wondered if you admitted it, but there seems to be a lack of them discussing, well, my first thought was there was no like racism towards French or Spanish, it seemed. You know, if you compare it to World War One, there's all this, oh, we're going to go and squash the, the Bally Bosch and yeah. come on England. And there didn't seem to be a lot of come on England or those bloody French or indeed like come on the Republic, you know, these... Yeah, yeah, yeah. These morons that mm-hmm. still have a have a king, yeah, 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 king. yeah, yeah. These barbarians like, with their monarchy. Like likewise, you know, you <clears> morons <throat> with your stupid republic. You know, that, come on, let's do it for the. Was that no? I, I genuinely, I don't, that wasn't present in what I saw, and that obviously there's a huge amount more that was written than I've read. The question you have to ask, I suppose, is this is all what's being written down afterwards, anyway. Mm. So there's a question as to whether or not that's something that people would write down afterwards. Mm. As a, I'm sure, I'm sure in the moment there's a good amount of <laughs> racist name calling, sure, uh, because that seems like part and parcel of what might happen if you're uh-huh. sh- shooting cannons at each other. But there isn't a huge amount of animosity. I mean, you know, that is definitely something that you know I think ties in with stuff I was saying in the second and third episodes about essentially greater levels of similarity and yeah. fellow feeling between sailors. Um, and the, I think they would have been aware that it was massively cosmopolitan and therefore kind of inaccurate to throw a racial slur at somebody opposite you yeah. who, who is quite likely to not belong to that nation. The, the, the kind of jingoistic thing, I think, is more relevant. There is, I mean, there is a lot of jingoistic stuff in, I suppose, the messaging before, you know, England expects every man will do his duty and that yep. kind of thing. And actually, but I think probably more so for the French, there's Admiral uh, Captain Lucas, who, who's the... Uh, a captain of the Red Utarb, the, the ship from which Nelson is shot and that kind of gets pretty much the victory spends its whole battle with the Red Utarb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucas, I think I, I recounted it, that he, he threw, he picked up the French, the eagle that they have on the, the eagle banner that actually each French regiment would carry, but each French ship also had one. And that's a hark back to Roman eagle banners, which were, you know, each legion would have an eagle and it's the soul of the of the legion and then you know if it gets captured or whatever it's like a massive deal um and he throws the french eagle onto the victory or he says he's going to i don't know if that actually happened because the red tarp never boards the victory you did recount that yeah Yeah, but he says he's going to lob it on and then we're all going to follow it. and i think so for that to be a well there's two ways we could read that either lucas is a political appointee who's massively out of touch and is thundering around and actually if you ask a French sailor they'd be like that's classic Lucas and he's a bit of a dick and I'm not gonna or he's he's tapping into something he knows his sailors would respond to mm. yeah the, and the French army and the French navy particularly the French army is famous at this time for doing lots of shouting and chanting of vive l'empereur and vive la republic and vive mm. la revolution and all, you know all that kind of stuff so so I think it is a genuine a genuine ideologically driven thing do you think then, having listened to the series, this is probably an unanswerable question, do you think that Nelson's Column is a suitable subject for public art? Ooh. I think, is it a suitable subject? I think, what does suitable mean? As in, well... I Appropriate. It, okay, yeah, is it appropriate? That's a good starting point. I think 
why this podcast was a good idea is because good start we're thinking (laughs) (laughs) because it was asking those questions because i think i'm relatively privileged and well educated Mm -hmm. but i walk around with my eyes closed around you know i live in london and i don't really think about it Mm -hmm. a lot and i think that was why it was a really good idea for a podcast because actually these these things take up literal space potentially space in our kind of public consciousness Mm -hmm. so after having listening to the podcast i think it's super i think in terms of at the time it seems suitable kind of like elevating him on a big column Mm -hmm. making him closer to god yeah at the time if you know france is a real big scary threat yeah lord nelson was brave and innovative and led his men very well and got a decisive victory and sacrificed his life but is the question now yeah i suppose now I'm not asking, are we going to go and push down Nelson Collins? But, like... Um, yeah, I think... Again, I think that's why it's a good podcast, because I don't think it's an easily answerable question. And for you to start with the census of people... Who, who is he? What do you know about him? Mm-hmm. It's a good place to start, isn't it? Because if no one knows who he is, then is there any point us having a statue of him? Mm. Um, Although that... I mean, the, 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 the and we could kind of descend into navel-gazing here, but... It's it's a bit like we're giving a bit more significance to something. We're saying this needs to have a reason or whatever. Okay. Whereas we could say if nobody knows who he is, then it's just a decoration that can be in the middle of a public space, and that's fine. You know what I mean? It would mm-hmm. it would take quite a lot of money to tear it down and put it somewhere else. And there's not something else that's going to go in the middle of Trafalgar Square. Or I mean, maybe it is. You could build an apartment block there and help solve the housing crisis or whatever. But you know what I mean? It's yeah. it why does there need to be a greater reason than? than maybe a few people it means something to and, mm-hmm. and it served its purpose when it was built. Yep. You wouldn't ask that of a tree. You you know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So then so then we can get rid of that then. So it's but the opposite it's, it's then. staying it's staying there. Yeah. But should we keep if you do know about it, should is it meaningful and should it stay? Yes. Wasn't one of the inspirations for this podcast the kind of tearing down yes. of of the statue in uh, Bristol. I can't remember his name. Yeah, that was the very first one <clears throat> that was really major. Edward Colston. Edward Colston. He was a slave. He was very much a slave trader. Yeah. So that yeah. was part of the. That was part of the original. Yeah. I mean, it's quite a while now actually casting your head back. But I think yeah. that began more publicly in the U.S. Didn't it? With a load. There was a lot. There's been a lot more founding South. fathers stuff and uh, and civil war generals yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know confederate generals and confederate and uh, schools named after confederate generals and stuff but obviously there's still the thing here which the the churchill statue gets mm-hmm. spray painted mm-hmm. pretty much every time there's any public protest yep. or anything somebody so is 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 nelson suitable i think yeah actually sorry no, there's useful information actually here which um which is that nelson like many people of that era was involved was essentially part of the the planter class he was he was implicated in making money from slaves mm-hmm. and i think i mean this is this is kind of an offhand comment which is very difficult to um i'm not going to give it a huge amount of weight either way but but seem to have been against abolition of you know abolition of slavery mm-hmm. um which is is obviously a pretty a pretty black mark against your name and is quite difficult as well for somebody who served in the caribbean mm-hmm. and therefore who would have actually have seen quite a lot of stuff mm-hmm. rather than you know somebody from a, an office in in england is the statue of nelson the slave trader or well i mean he wasn't a slave trader mm-hmm. but nelson the the slave profiteer well i mean that's probably the reason why it hasn't been the focus of any yeah i think you're probably right 
uh, vitriol and and because it wasn't his main job. His main job wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Though I mean, but the, I mean, the Royal Navy was the perpetrator and the prop that held up the British Empire, which was such a deeply exploitative thing yeah. for for a couple of hundred years. So, to some extent, his main job was the continuation of a really crap thing. I I mean. I suppose, and, and, and this is definitely going to feature more, he was lucky enough to die mm-hmm. relatively young. Mm-hmm. And he was lucky enough to die doing something that, that really didn't look like propping up a slave trading empire. Yep. Um, it looked like fighting the French, which, and France had lots of colonial possessions as well. So there's kind of, you can almost characterise it as like, well, yeah. he didn't die putting down a slave revolt or anything. Yeah. I don't know if I um, have much skin in the game in terms of, are statues appropriate mm. and your podcast kind of was a bit of a shamed me a little bit i think i found it so interesting because it kind of i was like oh i that's really bad that i don't mm-hmm. know enough about that because clearly it's he's important enough to dominate yeah a hugely central but, uh, space yeah. in our capital city yeah and it's and it led me into being more interested in history so if statues can do that then i suppose that's yeah I mean, it's, I, I do think the whole I, the whole ignorance thing is really in, is what what makes it interesting for me is that is that you the member of the public who doesn't know what it's about who yeah. doesn't know what it represents are the target audience. You that that it's not it's not realistic for the debate as it is, which has been raging for the last couple of years, to sort of to to speak to a sort of hypothetical person who is fully informed on everything, because that person doesn't exist. Yeah. And because statues aren't the audience of statues aren't the you know the small percentage of people who do know exactly what they what they stand mm, for, mm. and that's I think what you're saying about not having skin in the game as to you know whether or not uh, Nelson is representing certain things that sort of oppress you and have hurt you and and are, are, are kind of really nasty forces yeah. in your life. And I think that's totally fair. I think it's fair to say there are different you know elements of the population who are impacted differently by by different things and do have more or less of a right to kind of voice um their outrage about certain things but the 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 point in public statuary is it's 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 non-discriminate pluralist in terms of who it is for yeah it's for everybody and therefore we have to consider it and i'm not saying this one way or the other i'm just saying we have to consider it as something which will be viewed by entirely ignorant people Mm. not in a you know not qualifying that ignorance interesting as well the point you made about the figure of Nelson himself not actually being visible. Your dad yeah. said. Yeah, that was the first. When I suggested the whole thing, that was the first thing he said. I thought it was very insightful. It is insightful because yeah. if, if the pur- it's all it, you know, if the purpose is for the public to yeah. fawn over him and mourn yeah. and look at him, yeah, yeah, yeah. for future generations to yeah. look upon him, yeah. which I think is what statues are for. Yes, it's interesting that you put him up so high. It's almost yeah, like, it's kind of ridiculous. It's really difficult to see him. You have to go. I think you just have to Google it to actually be yeah. like, oh, that's. What but this the was before Google like. Maps and before exactly, drones, yeah. wasn't it? So it's, yeah, and probably when London was all smoggy and sort of impossible, yeah. you know, you can't see more than about ten feet up. Maybe that was it. Maybe you need to raise him above the smog. Raise him above he the smog. So... Yeah, into the clean air of of well, possibly. Yeah, I think that is a genuinely weird thing about it, and it's also just a wonderfully brutal way of making it's like let's just make a really big let's just make a really really big tall, as tall a thing it's a very childish sort of uh, yeah. attitude to venerating somebody um rather like the like the the lincoln memorial is like such an interesting counterpoint to see he's just sat there on a big chair mm. and it's sat there and you can go and like you know how big is it the lincoln massive memorial? is it okay it's really yeah, massive yeah. yeah and that's much more um much more greek 
that's much more like a Greek like te- temple where you have you have kind of effigies of the gods. It's almost like a house for the god. I mean, this is probably a completely false equivalency, but but I say the column is much more Roman. In Rome, you get Trajan's column, which is this huge thrusting thing, mm. phallic. That's what Very it's all phallic. about, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. Put it on Romans. a big cog. Good. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, before we go any further with the analysis of the statue itself, was there anything in the series that I skimmed over? historically or narratively or anything that you just you thought I skimmed over too quickly or you made Napoleon and, and you made Napoleon and that whole thing sound very interesting mm-hmm. so, but obviously that's you were clearly very careful because that's just a kind of cul-de-sac um, yeah but there is probably a whole other series to be done on well I think our only kind of totemic idea of the Napoleonic Wars is Waterloo and and how Wellington compares to to, to Nelson, which I, t- I did speak a little yeah. about a little bit. Yeah, I think you quoted him uh, talking to Nelson. Yes, having a conversation, and finding him a him. bit of an upstart, finding him a bit. <clears throat> yeah, they didn't. It, they didn't seem to like each other, or, or or Wellington didn't seem to like Nelson. Do you think Wellington just was less sort of likable? Just an interesting uh, foil to Nelson because he's he's the complete opposite in terms of, as we were talking about, those sort of benevolent vibe you get from yeah. from Nelson, is that Wellington was was probably at the time equally equally a big figure, not a celebrity in that sense, but equally held in incredibly high regard, particularly after Waterloo. He served twice as prime minister and was deeply loved to some extent by his soldiers, but in a totally different way. He was seen as a really hard, he was the Iron Duke as his... Mm. His uh, his his nickname, which wasn't revived until Margaret Thatcher, I guess, the Iron Lady. But um, that's a that's such a different vibe. And, it, and even if you just look at him, he has a look of like a, he's got a, this kind of famous Roman beak mm. and incredibly um, acerbic and laconic and kind of uncaring of his men. Actually, specifically, you know, called them all, you know, a bunch of thieves and criminals and scum. But there are scum, <laughs> yeah. kind of way, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and yeah. I don't, and and and, yeah. and I pity the man who has to fight them. But he, I mean, my theory about this ultimately is he lived too long. He goes on and he serves two terms as prime minister, mm. which I, I mean, I think I mentioned this in the first episode. If you, no, I don't think anyone in the, I mean, I can't, I can't even think of the last prime minister who's probably Gordon Brown. But Gordon yeah. Brown probably got away with it by not doing. You have got to do stuff. You have got to solve problems, and you're going to piss off like. Because of you know forty to fifty percent of people exactly yeah, yeah. you're yeah. going to piss off just under half of the populace that's kind of the <laughs> yeah. rules of democracy so yeah. that that I think is why we why he doesn't get held in such high regard and because mm. he, he he isn't kind of suitable for this essentially unrealistic branding as a sort of semi divine figure because he's 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 not very nice he's not very kind of pleasant yep I had another question uh-huh. in these countries that Napoleon was conquering. What happened to the royal families? Did he did he demand <laughs> that a republic was installed? Was it the the bizarre thing that happens with Napoleon is that and obviously I was talking about him as a republican, which is kind of ridiculous because he's an emperor, uh, yeah, and he's crowned himself. That was another thing I was going to so, ask. Yeah, it's a, but there, I mean you see exactly the same thing with Soviet Russia is that you get more than a king. Um, yeah, Napoleon is emperor Napoleon and puts his specifically puts his brother and stuff on the throne mm. of of. Uh, Spain, I think that might be wrong, but but um, puts his brother on. Let's say Spain for the sake of argument. But as, yeah, so he's installing a, and actually his vision by the by the end was to just install his siblings and his family onto various European thrones until you just have a kind of Napoleonosphere of of Europe just being controlled by different 
different Napoleons, different Bonapartes. Would he, had he become corrupted or would he say, I'm kind of... I think he would say, he's comparable to Cromwell in a lot of ways, um, in that he's kind of Republican, then he becomes, essentially Cromwell gets installed as Lord Protector and, mm. and his son is the second Lord Protector. I don't think Cromwell was, was corrupted because I don't think Cromwell had the same extent of, of power. But I do think Cromwell had exactly the same problem, which is he was, it was only possible because he was very, very capable. He was incredibly good at his job. And I think the same, exactly the same thing happened with, with Napoleon. And probably what they would probably, I'm not really a, a political theorist. And what they probably say is, oh, no, the two things are totally, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So we have quite a delimited idea of what republic means. It kind of doesn't necessarily exclude the idea of one person being in charge. Yep. But yes, I think he was totally power. So, but it could be he might say the the Bonaparte bros are the best guys. Yeah, we're just most capable. The Republic. Yeah, and obviously that doesn't that does not make any sense. But with Napoleon, because his his offspring, I don't think they're actually. I think well, one of them is his son, and and I think his his great nephew or something is Napoleon the third. It doesn't it doesn't fly to be honest Mm. to be to be saying that they're they're the most capable people to be in charge. And and I guess the whole of the Napoleonic era is existing essentially in a state of emergency. The whole of France is operating in a kind of like extraordinary powers for Napoleon because he's he's going to get us through this. I think that's something broader about the nature of politics and revolutionary politics particularly, is that they kind of exist in a state of emergency forever. One more. Oh yeah, go ahead. You mentioned the presence of like nine-year-old, ten-year-old children mm-hmm. on board. Yeah. I don't know, I just find that quite because it's shocking anyway yeah. the whole thing's shocking yeah as adults doing it to each other but the yeah. fact that there was like nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds yeah. is really who were they is there any account of them being i don't know looked after or something Anyone being of... worried about them. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well yeah um for me this actually it's not very distant history it's 200 years ago and actually you can kind of chain the events but you have that and then you've got the victorian era world war one world war two and then now it kind of yeah. it will kind of think oh very quickly it's it's so it's, it's not that long ago and obviously it's quite different because of the acceleration of technological change in the interim but it's really not very long ago and that is one of those things that seems just madly mm. foreign to what like we what we would accept there's kind of an an interesting duality to it or you could say a kind of fairness to it which is that the the gentlemen are also you know Nelson's on ships from the age of twelve mm. so it's not I mean, it is deeply exploitative, um, but it's not a necessarily a class exploitative thing. Sailing and sailors in this age, because of the the industrialization of farming and the growth of globalization, have become a really much more necessary and central part of any economy, particularly of the British em- economy of the British Empire. So they've be- it's become a more respected profession. It's basically become something that that is has has currency. So, so it, it, on on one level, it's just it's the necessity of well, this is a job that requires experts, and we need loads of them. And therefore, if you're going to do it, you go into it at, at an apprenticeship mm. level when you're nine. So their job was broadly being powder boys, which is just carrying powder. As I said, carrying the explosives, which is a great job to give to your <laughs> nine-year-old, or, or shot. Um, they're called powder monkeys. Mm. I, my understanding is that they would then be just, you know, and they turn fifteen and they go, "Oh, well, you've got enough muscles now. You can be a probably would go to being an able se- uh, uh, ordinary seaman or an able seaman, and would mm. kind of be shot up the up the that hierarchy of sailors and the midshipmen." it's kind of it's more like it's the end of your schooling it's not really like i don't think it's like it's a job it's more like you because they carry on learning maths and classics and 
different languages and stuff whilst they're on board ship. Right. Yeah, it's just like a it's like a placement school where Are you go. Te- and they're teachers. Um, well, that so depending on the size of the ship, you would either get the captain was sometimes responsible for their schooling. So the captain had, which is hilarious, saying they had to take time off all of the other stuff they were doing to teach the teach the 12 year olds their like Homer or whatever, right. which places it so I think so distinctly in this world of a kind of a world of of uh, of gentlemanly high society. He, he, he's kind of there to uphold that they're there, I think, most significantly, as I said, to stand there during the battle looking unruffled because again, because essentially this is the British establishment. I'm the representative of it. I'm here mm. overlooking you all. And this is how we're going to behave. Doing funerals, uh, reading the articles of war on a Sunday morning or whatever they did that, doing sermons, doing all of that kind of stuff. So it's more like they're kind of keeping house. Mm. Um, And I think the teaching of the midshipmen is just another part of that. It's kind of like, well, they're just kind of the responsible adult that a load of, you know, families are going, uh, fighting to get placements of their 12-year-old onto a good ship with a good captain who's going to bring them up well and do all of that kind of stuff, kind of in loco parentis. But then you'd sometimes also, there'd be like chaplains and there'd be all sorts of other people who would, you know, who would do their schooling and and some really big ships I'm sure had like a schoolmaster that makes sense because obviously when you hear it in in passing you're like mm-hmm. oh my god it does sound like yeah. it's some exploitative thing but yes. like you say it's clearly a culture yeah. of apprenticeships and working your way up and it would have been yeah. seen as something good for you to for you to send your kid off and yeah. do you also meant a kind of historical shift of what a boy is and what a man and yes yeah well yeah shift back yeah and what a teenager is you know which yeah. we've we've definitely kind of invented to some extent in the in the intervening 200 years in fact i think our modern preconception would be that um i think our modern preconception would be that before we invented teenagers you just carry on being a child until you're 18 but i think it's true that by inventing teenagers we actually extended childhood we said there's actually another like six years of childhood yep. after what I do need to say, actually, is that in turn, the, it, it would be remiss of me to suggest that it wasn't an exploitative and awful place to work mm-hmm. for a load of nine and ten year olds who were, I'm sure, were, were looked after and I think were were objects of affection, but were often objects of too much affection. I mean, if you're stuck on a ship of... Yeah, I mean, it's mm. not going to go into it in massive detail, but I think there was almost certainly quite a lot of sexual abuse of mm. young boys um, on these ships. I think it was very much... I mean, I'd say frowned upon, but it was like it was actually like a massively like if it were publicly known of, it would be punished incredibly severely. Right. So it was it wasn't seen as like, oh, that's just something we do. But I suspect these things often operate on two levels. So it's a kind of like it's a thing we know that happens and we're not going to talk about it. But if somebody was known to have done that, then it would be, I think, you know, a hanging offence. So much like today in institutions yes absolutely yeah Yeah, yeah, actually you're right then that's definitely one of the more kind of unsavory parts of it to go back to what i was saying about it being a kind of booming industry i don't think their kids being like kidnapped out of their out of you know from school playgrounds whatever i think it's parents going you're going to go to sea and that's going to make you okay these are some slightly more sort of uh speculative questions um well okay this is one that you may not have a good answer for at all there's maybe a crap one putting you on the spot who would who is there another historical figure that you think because i think it's actually quite weird that specifically Nelson is at the top of... As we're saying, it's Trafalgar Square is probably... I mean, for people who don't live in London, Trafalgar Square is is not actually in the geographic centre of London and it's not it's not like the Houses of Parliament are like on top of it or whatever. I would say if you're going to the centre of London, I would think Trafalgar Square would be pretty much up there in terms of where you would meet or whatever, yeah. where you would think of as oh, that's the centre of London. And he's right at the middle of it. That's kind of pole position for a statue. Is there somebody else that you think would make more sense to be up there? Okay, so first question was 
was did Nelson was our country genuinely under threat existentially under threat yes <clears throat> yeah that's actually a very good question a little bit difficult to answer not, um, a, not a flat no with another question would be what do you mean by existentially under threat because it's not it's it's not like a like Game of Thrones. The like Dothraki hordes are going to descend and murder everybody and burn everything to the ground yeah, yeah, yeah. and sink England or whatever. That, that so that kind of needs some thinking about. I think a country is is I guess a nation is existentially under threat when it will stop kind of recognisably being the same nation afterwards. And and the things that do that, I think, or the things that tend to look like they're doing that, I don't know how true this is, are big ideological changes. So so invasions from very ideologically different systems. If Napoleon had conquered Great Britain, that actually there, there, there are a load of weird things that were going on in France, which are kind of fundamental, almost seem like more important because they're so basic, like that they would, they changed to a load of different months. They changed the names of the months to... Brumaire and Plurial and they tried I think tried to go to a 10 day working week or 10 day week that would then be more sort of um it was all in the it was all in the name of rationalizing everything mm. um interestingly the French Revolution starts possibly in part because the the ancien regime the kind of the old way of running France had become so kind of Byzantine in its structure and there were like d- divisions of kind of counties or I mean they're not called that in France had, had become like there was like t- maps on top of maps on top of maps in terms of like what church district and what ancient baronial thing got tithes and levies from blah 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 and that was part of the kind of gumming up that kind of caused this whole thing to come to a to a head and i think that then moves through the french revolution in this kind of let's streamline everything and let's right, make right. everything so they mm-hmm. yeah it's 10 day week thing and i i think i mean i'm probably this probably a I shouldn't really be talking about this because I'm not very well informed on it, but I think they tried to introduce a 13th month that was like, it was called like Revolution or something. And it was like, <laughs> this is the month where we just celebrate the revolution or something. Each month is four weeks long or each month is three weeks long and it's, and it's, and there's 12, 12 months and each week is 10 days and you end up with a little extra bit at the end of like six days. Okay. And that becomes like Revolution. That's kind of like the, the downtime when you do something else. And they, well, most obviously they introduce a metric system. That's basically a, a, a relic of revolutionary France. Those are the things that would change, I think, that would almost be like, oh, my God, this is unrecognisable. We're, yep. we're measuring things in centimetres now and yeah. we've got a 10-day week. That would be a more fundamental change. And therefore, that's the kind of thing that's seen as a, an existential threat to the country. Mm. So if, well, and along with the royal family would all be killed, probably, and uh, the aristocracy would probably be unlanded and everything would change in that sense as well. Mm. So that, that, so that w- it would be a very deep change. Whether or not it was actually going to happen, by the time Trafalgar happens, the Grand Army has already moved to, has already gone and fought the Battle of Austerlitz and Ulm. Well, actually just after Trafalgar, but it's no longer waiting to go and invade. And an amphibious invasion of an entire island is, it's very, well, I mean, again, really comparable to Operation Sea Lion in the Second World War. People always talking about the Battle of Britain being such a, and I'm almost definitely going to do a series on the Battle of Britain at some point, but that it was a kind of, like skin of the teeth and if we hadn't pulled this off then we would have been invaded and we would have been absolutely rolled over because we only had dad's army kind of thing it only takes looking what had to happen on d-day with like two years preparation and the combined might of the entire u.s military industrial complex and the british empire to put together this enormous overwhelming display of force like crazy and it went well and it went pretty seamlessly and and that was successful but if that's what was needed to do D-Day, the opposite wouldn't have been any easier. And Germany didn't have that. And and very similarly, you know, 140 years previously to that, 
trying to do that with sailing boats without really having naval superiority, all of that kind of stuff would have been mm. horribly difficult. So it, it, it would never have been as straightforward as mm. Napoleon was making it out to be. So I don't know if it ever would have actually happened. Okay, so so then if if our big central statue, because I, I was thinking that, okay, well, the big central Sorry, statue... Sorry, that was massively rambling no, 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 as an answer. No, it's good to know, but yeah. that answers my question. Yeah. If the big central statue is... Well, it has to be of a saviour. He saved us. Yeah. yeah. He saved us. Who else is a he saved well, us? Well, Churchill. Churchill, yeah. And there right. is, I mean, it's, the Churchill statue is, is, you know, approximate to it and it's very close, but... Who else has he saved us? Uh, yeah, I said, well... Or she. Or she, oh. indeed. What, here as well, Elizabeth I, I would say. Okay. Elizabeth, I would say that the Spanish Armada is much closer to happening and it's much more contingent that it doesn't. You know what I mean? The, 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 the fact that it doesn't happen is kind of down to Francis Drake and whatever, Walter Raleigh, but it's really the, the weather. Elizabeth I's army at Tilbury is really crap. It's pretty recorded how crap it was. And there was a, and and that could have happened. I think that properly could have happened. So, but though though again, you're right. That's a that's a uh, uh, that's a, mo- a monarchic power invading another. It's just kind of monarchic politics rather than a complete overthrow of the whole system. That, that, mm. that as it is, I think the other thing I suppose about Elizabeth I is that she doesn't as massively important as she was. Mm-hmm. She didn't win the battle. Mm-hmm. The weather did. So, but then, so it seems like from what you've said, if it's he saves us. It needs to be he's properly saved us, mm-hmm. which can only happen after this idea of total war. Which <clears throat> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I was outlining. Yeah. What, yeah. So therefore, it's only relatively recent history that we that we even that we even can can have about. that. Yeah, I think you're, I think that's de- totally right. Yeah. And then, but then the other question is, why not some really significant like cultural player or cultural icon? Yeah. I think military. Well, no, the the military the military statuary thing is arguably because most of the statues you see are are kind of Victorian statues. They're mostly built during the reign of Queen Victoria or since then. But if they're since then, they're usually in the style of Victorian statuary. And Victorian statuary is all in the style of Roman statuary. So it's all just following a tradition of this is what we do statues of. Um, and Roman statues are of generals broadly. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you get occasional whatever, Cicero or whoever, but you but mostly it's mostly it's military. So the statue, you could say the statue is just fundamentally a military thing f- from its inception. The other reason I think for that is that thing of, I think a kind of weird, almost like a game theory thing about it, which is that the stat- the statue is there for Nelson. And that's not to say, that's to say that I think Nelson was massively into his own public persona, his own image and how celebrated he was and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't think he would have done what he, maybe he would have, maybe that's too, too firm. But it's, I think it's arguable that he might not have done what he had done in the same way if he wasn't aware somewhere in the back of his head that there was the possibility that Nelson's column would get built after he died. Because I think it's a very easy argument to say oh well it's so that soldiers in the future will look at it and try to emulate what he did mm-hmm. i actually think it's more makes more sense to think of it in terms of yeah he he was thinking that's a possibility and i think basically military stuff soldiering is the profession most obviously that i can think of which demands you to do horribly risky things mm-hmm. and therefore you would need Why? this slightly outsized mm-hmm. sort of incentive to go and do it yeah, like he said, he actually says before, you know, he says, I'll very soon put the nation to great expense, either a pension and honours or a, <laughs> a big 
fucking statue <laughs> is basically right, what yeah, I, you yeah. know, that's to massively go off the, the actual quote there at the end. But, you know, that roughly <laughs> is a fucking massive fucking statue. statue. Yeah. So that's, that's, I think, why. And I don't, I just think you could say, actually, because, you know, civil rights activists, let's say, are probably working from a purer standpoint. Yeah. You don't you don't need there to be statues of civil rights activists for civil rights activists to go, I need to do this, because probably they're doing it for a combination of their own situation, which is awful, and therefore they've got to try to do something to address it, and a principled idea of what's right and what's good and so forth. Mm. And I'm guessing just they're cut from a sort of cloth that doesn't need, that isn't... And would, probably wouldn't want... It, well, maybe yeah. might not, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, everyone's human, but... Yeah, yeah need massive adulation and stuff in order to incentivize them to do what they're doing hello peter here editing the episode um i've just got a bit paranoid really uh, on this bit I'm, I'm worried that it sounded like i think we shouldn't have statues of activists um, and i totally don't mean that i think that gandhi or millicent Fawcett are, are great people to have statues of and there are lovely statues of them in london so go and have a look i suppose what i'm tra- what i was trying to say was i, I don't think that the prospect of having a statue made is what motivated most activists to do what they do i mean for example if gandhi just wanted a statue in parliament square there are probably easier ways he could have done that okay on that same sort of bent if it's not about a historical figure um i went a little bit into the uh sort of hysterics that followed his death nelson's death and the 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 size of that kind of public display is there somebody who 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 would have to die now? Do you think for that similar thing to happen, or are we are we capable of that anymore? Well, we well we've had we have had haven't we we've had a spate of celebrities die with and with public displays of grief. David Bowie and Prince. David Bowie's a really good one, actually. Yeah, that um, was very similar. I mean, not 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 on the same scale, but yeah, a similar timbre kind of, of reaction. Is there a statue to David Bowie? Should there be? A well, there's the there's Bowie? the big old mural in Brixton. So there was quite a big outpouring of grief, and I know Adam Buxton, whose podcast I listen yeah. to, I know that he He's, was like genuinely yeah. upset. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, that's actually yeah, it's very cynical of us actually. I think to assume, and my word hysterics is very loaded and wrong, really, to say that all of those people in 1805 were 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 putting it on. Because you're right. I think it only takes things like yeah, like David Bowie to to actually show us. Oh, actually, people are genuinely very upset in a real sense, by by the passing of people who they don't know at all. But there's a different character, because I think it has absolutely the most in common with Princess Diana. And I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of get at people and make them seem silly for it, but that did feel like there was a degree of performative mourning going on. There was a degree of... And I don't think that's done cynically or consciously. I don't think people are going, I'm going to pretend to be sad so that people think I'm really in touch with everything. Mm. I definitely did. and Because I, I remember, I remember, what were we, you're, I'm Very, slightly older than you. Was, yeah. was I 12, maybe? It was 97, I think. Okay, so I was eight. Yeah. And I remember my mum telling me, like it was, not dad's died, but mm-hmm. it was like auntie Maureen's died. It right. was that equivalent of seriousness. Yeah. And then I remember I went and like, because I lived on, on site on school, then there was a flag and the flag was at half mast and I remember going and laying flowers down on this oh, God. flag so but was and, it a Union Jack or a, a George's Cross oh I can't remember it must have been mustn't it it must have been Union one of the Jack. two and Diana would have wanted it to be but know. again I didn't know she, I was eight yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah. I, I had been infected with this <clears throat> idea yeah. that it was really you should be really sad it was really important. important so yeah who 
would you put there now for our time? Oh Which currently living celebrity? God. This is definitely a speculative and quite silly, silly question. <laughs> who, who would be maybe somebody who'd fill a similar role to Nelson in our, in our modern uh, sort of paradigm? Oh, my God. So is the question... The question's whatever you make of it. Say the question again. So the question is, who... I'm going to say currently living. Currently let's living. Say, currently living or recently deceased, let's yeah. say. Um, because, well, okay, let's say at the start you said you felt... You thought of Nelson as a sort of a person that old people think about. You, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. that it's, it's no longer... It's not... It doesn't have any real grip on the modern sort of psyche. It's not relevant to the modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, who then would you put... But who maybe, you know, now with what you do know about Nelson, mm-hmm. fulfills a similar role or holds a similar place in our mind... Yeah. Who would you put up there? Sure. I think, I guess, what it seems to me, it's this kind of combination of mm-hmm. decisive victory yeah. through ingenuity, bravery. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of had, seemed to be, you know, full of humility and he just seemed grounded and sensible and mm-hmm. got the best out of people. And the way he dealt with his disability, the way he dealt with his men. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to just sort of be a kind of crystallization of a lot of good qualities. So Gareth Southgate. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it did, it, it's funny you say that because like, it is <laughs> interesting. Well, there are some similarities, aren't there? There are, there are some similarities. That, um, Not necessarily between the actual no, people, but, between the way we view them, yeah. Yeah, and I, but I think you make a good point with football because, like, you know that the Euros run? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, what England meant... Yep. Oh, yeah. ...suddenly became... A lot clearer. A lot clearer. Not, well, not... Not, not cl- clearer. Yes, not clearer. But we all felt... A lot this... more unified in terms yeah. of there was some sort of idea actually floating out there for a minute where everyone yeah, was like, oh, just... we've got the same idea. Yeah. And we couldn't articulate, could articulate yes. it, but when yeah. you went... And a lot to... of us felt slightly uncomfortable with yeah. it. Yeah. Kind of in the background thinking, oh, maybe I'm not meant to feel like yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Southgate... <laughs> hey. ...seemed to Im- embody some... That... Something, yeah, whatever that was, um, more than any of the players, yeah, and obviously football, yeah, and war. There was some abstraction of this is our team going against yeah, other yeah, teams. Yeah, yeah. He's the, he's our yeah. head of our nation, and there's a combination of a kind of players are physically putting themselves out there, physically enduring, physically risking something. Yeah, he's got the um, you know Nelson cuts a sort of re- physically recognisable figure in terms mm. of his. Um, like the shirt pinned across the... And you've got Southgate's waistcoats. Yep. Obviously. Yeah. Nelson has a slightly sort of funny look to him. And that's not to say he's, he, he was sort of ugly, but he he had, he had was he was noted as being sort of like a bit odd looking, a bit funny mm-hmm. looking. And Gareth Southgate had that as well. Mm-hmm. And again, not saying he's ugly, but he's got... He's distinct, he's distinct to look at. He is. Underdog. Yep. Southgate had a pretty... Disastrous exit from his own career, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I think I don't know very much about football, but no, I think he I. scored some own goals. I think he did some really. I think he missed I, a penalty. Maybe. I think he missed a penalty, and I think yeah, he might yeah, have yeah. scored an own goal at some point. Mm-hmm. And the, the 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 I think most obviously the kind of benevolence, that sort of idea, the the feeling of ah, oh, this is a guy which you never got with like Sven Joran Eriksson, did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, but you get with him, you go ah, oh, this I like him, and even if he loses, I feel like he's going to go in and pat them all on the back, yeah. and they're all going to be mates. And well, apparent and apparently the dressing room, yeah, was perfect in terms of its climate and yeah. players were happy to be under him and they got they were getting results as well mm-hmm. which I guess is the Nelson versus Wellington isn't it? 
being able to do it without needing an iron fist, not yeah. needing to be... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not needing to be a haughty aristocrat. So Southgate, not such a jokey shout. That's actually a great shout. <laughs> Maybe sporting prowess is the equivalent to military prowess these days. I don't know. It somehow gives you permission yeah. to... Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not British, but... For services to... For services to the world. Great films. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, again, this is me saying that it can be it can be a totally empty reason that he's up there, but... That to some extent, I feel like if Tom Hanks was at the top of Nelson's column, people would be like, "Oh, good old Tom Hanks. Old he's Tom looking Hanks. over us." I think he's slightly too distant. I can't imagine having a conversation with him. I can imagine he's having also, a conversation with Gary Lineker. He's also not English. No, not that's British. that's very true. So we can't. We can't have. We can't have Hanks up there. Yeah, the, just the, the metaphor of, of leading a football team, which is a nation, somehow just fits with statues, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but I guess the original question was who's who's a kind of well okay so who's a kind of personality do we idolise I suppose because we, yeah. we can't have a military guy yeah so is there someone uh, yeah. that crystallises a kind of personality yeah well and I think the, the the I think Nelson's column is a personality statue isn't it I yeah. think it's a it's not it's it wouldn't work if he was a total knob who just popped into my head Tim Henman <laughs> there was well, a he moment had, he had a mount God, he had there was a, a moment he had a was, yeah he had a hill he had Henman Hill then, he didn't have a mount Murray, uh, had, a Murray mount. had a mount yeah. yeah. Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson could have been up there. It was a pivotal moment. That well, that kick. That kick. I remember the kick. I was. I was about twelve, I think, and I remember it. His that was his Trafalgar against the Aussies. Was it the Aussies or South Africans? All right. Um, I don't think I. Do you have any closing other questions? Any other bits and bobs? Thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming and talking to me. I just think. It's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I'll definitely take that. Um, And maybe we'll have you back on sometime. Thank you very much to Ben. Uh, As I say, I'm intending to continue with this little interview feature as I think it's a good way to get some different perspectives other than my own, my very narrow uh, window onto things. So now I want to wrap up the series with a little look at the, the legacies of this man and of these events. Now, one of the interesting things about the Battle of Trafalgar, I think, uh, in terms of its status as a British historical event, is that it fits into a bit of a tradition of, I suppose, what I would term a negative event, in that, like the Battle of Britain or Dunkirk, it essentially stopped something from happening rather than caused something to happen. Now, obviously, you could just flip that round and, and have it whichever way you like, but 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 it's, it's kind of a, a stopping of something happening. For that reason, I think these events hold a sort of exceptional place in our myth often, particularly in a British one. I don't know if this is this is distinctly British, but I think it's definitely something that we have lurking around at the back of our mind, which is that we're the sort of the last bastion of something. And I think that probably has to do with geography as much as anything. We're We're the last defender of a certain set of ideals or a certain way of life or and I think that probably has something to do with a, a, a human uh, bias towards, you know, the, the way that things are. And for that reason, we see positive events, you know, th- events that cause things to happen. The Russian Revolution as kind of inevitable playing out of the way that things were going to be. And of course, that's what we're, we're living with the world that is in the aftermath of, of, of the Russian Revolution. Therefore, we kind of see, well, yeah, that's just how things are. Whereas negative events, we see, I think we often see them as, as stopping a sort of unholy departure from the way that things were supposed to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why something like, like Trafalgar gets the, kind of gets the amount of historical kudos that it, that it, that it does. So as I said, the, the, this British idea of being the final bastion of something 
this idea that if we get conquered, if, if Britain were to fall, then that would mean something irreversible and something terrible would happen. And the continuance of civilization is on the one side of winning the Battle of Trafalgar or winning the Battle of Britain, and doom and hellfire is on the other. But this is such a fallible idea. Because in a, a counterfactual, let's say uh, Napoleon had never seized power in the coup of Brumaire. He nearly did, but he was thwarted. It might be easy to spot that, you know, if, if we lived in that world, we would probably be spotting that as a key moment when, you know, dictatorship was, was held back. And if Napoleon had seized power at Brumaire, God, it would have all been terrible. And we'd now be all speaking French. And But we see what happened to France. France isn't now a dictatorship. France is a, a modern democracy comparable with lots of other European democracies. Another example, actually, that just is, a, I suppose, a bugbear of mine, um, there was this guy, Charles Martel. And this is a kind of early uh, French king or, or a proto-French king, I suppose, um, at the Battle of Tours. He defeated a large army of Spanish Moors um, and es essentially sort of take this is taken as the high tide mark of, of Islam moving into Europe in the Middle Ages. Now, firstly, this rests on a, a deeply you know, problematic Orientalist view of Islam as a sort of homogenous invasive force. Um, but that aside... It's difficult to say that if he didn't win that battle, the world would be vastly, vastly different. And it's even harder to say that it would be different for the worse, certainly. Spain was already 95%, pretty much entirely occupied by, by the Umayyads, who happened to be Muslims. And it's not like we now look at Spain and we, we rue the day it fell to Islam. And the, the human brain, I think, is predisposed to see the world we occupy now as a sort of miraculous preservation of the status quo that we've walked a terribly thin path to get to where we are now and we've just about made it um i think for this reason we give a disproportionate significance to essentially preventative events and this contributes in a large a large measure i think to the significance we give to trafalgar now for the very end of this series um i well i tried to do a, a grand sort of roundup uh, telling you all of the great things and all of the bad things about Nelson's column and what exactly we should make of it uh, in our modern world. Um, and it became incredibly rambling. And also I realised that's sort of not the point in what I'm trying to do here, which is I want to give people the information and arm them to, to, to make these judgments um, for themselves. So by way of, of rounding off this series, so by way of rounding off this series, I really just want to talk about one aspect of this or talk about it from one angle and what it's all come down to for me I think is the idea of the cult of Nelson and I mean the cult of Nelson in quite a specific sense not just that we're you know he's somebody we're all terribly excited about but there are some specific elements that I think do do make it a sort of cult a, a celebrity cult first and foremost there's this deeply sort of saintly aspect that comes with Nelson and and that it has built up in the 200 years since his death we have these these relics of his body. Um, we, we have the bullet that killed him. It's in Windsor Castle. The uniform that he was wearing, the bullet hole in it, is in the National Maritime Museum, sort of like saintly relics. Um, a lock of his hair was actually given to the Japanese Navy during the Russo-Japanese War, like this sort of talisman with magical powers. The articles of his life were sort of treated in the same way as, as religious relics were. As I, I spoke about, um, I think, in the in the previous episode or the start of this one, that Nelson's body was was stripped of its hair and its and its clothes in a deeply, I mean, in a, a sort of slightly paganistic religious way, but in any case, a sort of there's a definite cult there. Beatty, who's his uh, his surgeon, the surgeon who nursed him to his death, uh, said, "Quote: Witnessed in its undecayed state after a lapse of two months since death, 
which excited the surprise of all who beheld it, end quote, to describe Nelson's corpse. Essentially, I mean, that was because it was been, it had been pickled in gin. But Beatty is talking about it as though it is a miraculously preserved body, very like the, an early medieval saint, St. Cuthbert. That is, that's kind of one of his main miracles, is that his body gets uncovered multiple times and it's still fresh and the beard's still growing and whatever. That, those are the terms in which people speak of Nelson. In fact, ju- just to round off this section, all you need do in order to understand this uh, semi-divine uh, way in which Nelson has been seen uh, is look at a painting called The Apotheosis of Nelson. I'll try and put it in the, the uh, show description or whatever. Uh, but if not, just go and, go and Google it. The Apotheosis of Nelson by a guy called Pierre-Nicolas Legrand. And it, I mean, it's, it's Nelson in a deeply kind of classical scene. He's ascending. Uh, he's obviously sort of flying up into, into the heavens. And it's actually using pagan gods. It's using Mars and, um, and Poseidon and, and Britannia, the you know, sort of female personification of Great Britain bidding farewell to him. And this stuff actually, there was a bit of kickback from the from the from the English church because it felt like a bit of a challenge to you know it's it's employing the pagan gods and it's a sort of it's sort of like well hold on let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves and put this guy on um, you know the ultimate pedestal, and that's further extended by this sense of him as a martyr. As we said before, that's really important for his legend is that he dies at Trafalgar. If he didn't, I don't think we'd we'd, we'd be talking about him now. A bit like James Dean, die young, leave a beautiful corpse. In the most obvious sense, he would be framed as a martyr to his nation. Obviously, that's a silly way to think about him because he's the one who decided to be there in pretty much every sense. He decided on the strategy. He decided to join the navy. It's not as though he's trying to free a load of people from persecution in fighting this battle. He's he's trying to further the power of this world-spanning empire. Yet, he still has the flavour of a martyr. For me, I, I mean, I came into this whole story with a set of things that I thought I was going to talk about but I also discovered some things along the way that I had no preconception of and and one of these was this sort of martyr complex that Nelson seems to have had that he repeatedly you know eulogized for himself before these battles that he even in his last diary entry before before Trafalgar he is still talking about both of course winning a glorious victory but these words stand out sort of not bringing shame to the country or that nobody would think badly of me after this great death. He's seeking out a glorious death, and and as I've said before, I think the celebrity, and he is you know one of the first ones perhaps, is held hostage by the the adoring public. It's definitely something we see with modern celebrity. Lady Catley or Lady Cattlery, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, but who's you know contemporary of his, said, quote. The public would never have sent him on another expedition. His health was not equal to another effort, and he might have yielded to more natural but less imposing efforts of more worldly honours. Whereas he now begins his immortal career. Had I been his wife or his mother, I would rather have wept him dead than see him languish on a less splendid day. End quote. Now, to, to translate that, she's essentially saying, it's fantastic, isn't it, that he's died in this wonderful way? Actually, it would be such a shame if he'd come back, because he would have just gone and retired at Merton and had a quiet life and probably scandalised himself with his, you know, his bastard child and his mistress. It's much better that he's died a martyrdom to the public, to his own public image. So not only did Nelson feel this way about himself, but other people felt that way about him too. That I mean... I don't know, I think there's some reflecting we can do on that about certain celebrities at the moment that we, there's deep, there's something deeply toxic about that. And I think that's kind of born, maybe, uh, with Nelson. So he has all of these saintly sort of trappings. 
And I think what that allows for us to do is a, is, is a veneration of a benevolent killer. As I was talking about with Ben, a sort of, this sort of benevolent feeling of a, of a sort of beatific man at the top who's going to look after us all, but ultimately he's also sending us all to our very brutal deaths and is going to cause a lot of destruction and has spent a lot of his life searching out destruction. And I think, I mean, that pairs with, and I, I think this is going to be really what I want to talk about for the rest of this episode, is a romanticization that we have of a deeply brutal time. I think Nelson is the benevolent killer, and I think this time is the the, the, the sort of beautiful age of utter subjugation and horrible, brutal empire. This is summed up for me in, in some of Nelson's last words, which for some reason I'm only just getting to now, but this whole series is named after those words, kiss me hardy. Now there is a, just because it needs to be mentioned, there is a school of thought, which he's perhaps saying kismet hardy, as in this is what's meant to be. I don't buy that, to be honest. In fact, I, I think that's a, a Victorian creation of some Victorians who desperately want Nelson to be a great national hero, but hate the idea of these sort of vaguely homosexual words coming out of his mouth at the end of his life. Uh, so I think we should steer, we, we don't need to buy into all of that nonsense anymore. I think Kiss Me Hardy makes so much more sense as final words. He's dying and basically his mate's there and and, and it's so deeply humanising and so deeply tender that, uh, that, I mean, that's why I think he hasn't been adopted really by by, by sort of uh, neo-nationalist groups, by far-right groups. He doesn't work as a, as a nationalist strongman because his last words are Kiss Me Hardy. And that sums up this this vulnerability and this kind of steely determination and and bloody-mindedness. Andrew Lambert, this historian that I've taken a lot from over this series, says, quote, Unlike military heroes of the age who destroyed their romantic credibility in government, Nelson's greatness was entwined with the sea, an alien element, at once threatening but distant, a theatre for the sublime. End quote. So I think, I mean, it's about Nelson, but it's about the age of sail more broadly, which is, you know, I love that phrase from Lambert, a theatre for the sublime. This, that naval conflict and that the, the, the age of sail is a sort of suitable subject for the sublime, for beauty, for romanticization at the same time as it's, you know, it's very kind of realpolitik, hard-edged place in that era and also the, the brutal realities of life on board ship and of naval combat and of the systems of slavery and and plantations and and colonial oppression that it is propping up and this battle in fact Nelson's life is very closely followed by the romantic movement the artistic romantic movement and I think it's a it's a perfect subject for it and it, it does you know there's lots of paintings and poems and so forth about sailing and about the sea Whereas the battlefield carnage of Waterloo, you know, ten years later, is a representation of everything the Romantics despise, it's, you know, it it, it it's um it's sort of inferno esque, and in fact it is painted by the Romantics, but as a in a deeply critical way, you know, to look like this kind of portal into hell. It's industrial, it's very human, and there's lots of corpses. Whereas, you know, Trafalgar is is equally horrific in many senses but shipwrecks and corpses sink and instead you get these billowing sails and people looking noble and a lot of the dirt is sort of washed away it is a suitable subject to be romanticized and i think our naval history more broadly is 
for that reason, a sort of suitable subject for romanticization through the lens of this cult of Nelson, by which we've created a sort of bridge that I think allows us into this era in a much more nostalgic and romantic way than, than we might think actually even of, of previous eras. I don't think it's a thing about the separation of time. If we think about you know, the medieval era, we're more nostalgic for the age of sale than we are for this, you know, the medieval era. So I don't, I don't think it's about time scope. And there, as I've said, there's this broader contradiction in the age of sale of this, you know, brutality and, and beauty, the sublime and the very real. This cult of Nelson gives us permission for a, a contradictory sort of fondness for something that we aren't allowed to be fond of anymore, really. And I don't mean allowed as in there's some busybody stopping us. I think we, we, we aren't allowed because we, you know, human ethics and so forth have advanced beyond this. Well, that the era of 1750 to 1850 of brutal domination of the British Empire is a good thing. There are lots of, of superficial reasons that we might romanticise that period. There's fancy fashion, lots of high culture, the celebrated poetry, courtly behaviour. All sorts of things that, that aren't terrible in and of themselves. But I think subconsciously or consciously... It's because the empire was in its heyday. The British Empire proved itself to be a true superpower and, you know, it wasn't yet showing the signs of the decay that would become very apparent in the subsequent century. And I don't think it's just jingoistic nationalists who who use this as a sort of vicarious way to feel some some degree of warmth or nostalgia for that. I think it's it's a lot of right thinking polite society, actually maybe me you know for making this podcast you know it's, it's Nelson it's figures like him you know through his apparent admirable qualities and through this rather disarming sort of quasi-Christian cult that we have of him and his slightly countercultural zest as well you know his the fact that he's having an extramarital affair and so forth that allow us to sort of glory in I think our world dominating past if we were really pushed to admit it without looking like we are so this cult was established I mean very much in the time. It's not something that we've come up with recently. And it's been used over the years for many, many different things. And just to give you a, a, a look into the idea that this statue is not a sort of fixed point in time. It's not something that has any sort of innate values. It's all about what we project onto these things. And they are used quite purposefully, either by their builders or by people who kind of co-opt them along the way. In 1813, uh, a guy called Robert Southey wrote a, a biography of Nelson. Uh, Lambert says, quote, Southey was anxious to show the country that their leaders were men of character. However, he also used Nelson to show that the aristocracy had no monopoly on leadership or virtue. His book would inspire young officers, teaching them command, leadership, humanity, and the care of their men, end quote. Now, the Royal Navy, towards the end of the, of the 19th century, was totally ascendant and was going to, by the start of the First World War, have access to something like 80% of global shipping. And it needed to build a legend for itself. It needed to recruit its future heroes. And what, what Lambert's saying there about Southey's biography is that it, it was, well, one, an instructional manual, and two, a recruiting pamphlet. And the, the Royal Navy made hay of this, you know, the loss of a great hero, but thought, well, hold on, actually, there's something we can do with this. Jane Codrington, who's the wife of uh, Captain Codrington, uh, who was one of one of Nelson's captains at, at Trafalgar at the funeral said, quote, let us therefore not continue to lament a death so fine and well-timed for himself. There we go. We have the, the toxic well-timed death. Wonderful. We're so glad for Nelson. Anyway, uh, quote, but rather turn with hope and reanimating confidence to our future Nelsons, end quote. Our future Nelsons. 
she goes on actually to nominate her husband as a, as a candidate for that role. But he's already, by the time of his funeral, functioning as a sort of template for the you know good officers for the Royal Navy of the future. A 13-year-old boy, a young guy called Frederick Marriott, uh, who, would, who would actually go on to serve in the Navy, who was watching the funeral procession, said, quote, As the triumphal car disappeared from my aching eye, I felt that death could have no terrors if followed by such a funeral, and I determined that I would be buried in the same manner. End quote. Now, despite the high-flown, rather well-written... Th- I mean, he was actually went on to be a, a novelist, so Mr Marriott was, was obviously capable in that regard. What that is is a 13-year-old boy saying, I can't wait to die in the way that Nelson died. Now, that's really useful if you're the Royal Navy. It's horrible in, you know, in, in general humanistic sense. You're getting 13-year-old boys, read, you know, and that's the age at which pretty much Nelson entered the Navy, who are going to be the next generation of officers ready to lay themselves down on the altar of empire and the funeral i mean this is way before the the, the, the columns up but the funeral is acting as a kind you know the, the beginnings of that now there's recruitment going on but there's also the idea is being built the, the column was built very much for the early to mid 19th century trafalgar was this enormous prestige victory that meant british domination of the sea was assured as we've already discussed, and as you know, if any any of us can work out on our own, there's nothing fundamentally special about British people or the British Navy, as was seen in the 20th century when it all you know got outstripped by other nations' navies. But rather, British naval domination became a self-fulfilling prophecy: the British are the best because the British are the best. And and realistically, the British Navy was dominant for the next century, if we're honest, because nobody really challenged it between you know, 1805 and 1905. I'm sure there's loads of holes that can be poked in that statement, as with any grand statement. But but broadly, it didn't have to do any big Trafalgars because nobody bothered to try. You know, riding on the back of the memory of Nelson, Trafalgar was enshrined in a sort of pantheon of Britannia as a useful means of perpetuating the idea that there's no point in even trying to challenge the Royal Navy for supremacy. And that that's a really valuable idea for, for, for Great Britain to... To cultivate, there are some real, uh, real low points of the myth of Nelson as well. That's the thing: the cult of Nelson doesn't isn't transcendent for two hundred years. Uh, in nineteen oh five, at the one hundred year anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar, there were all sorts of memorial celebrations all around the country, but notably, no royals attended any of them. Britain had actually just entered the Entente Cordiale with France, the alliance that would take them through the First World War, and it really didn't want to annoy the French. It didn't want to bring up their past conflicts. It would be in really poor taste. So, I mean, you can see there, the, these stories are not, act, they're, they're active elements. They're not just, they don't exist in a vacuum. They are, they are consciously created and they are used in all sorts of ways. And if it's not convenient to, to memorialise Trafalgar anymore, we stop doing so. It was, I mean, the story was also used for really nasty reasons. Um, in my chat with, with Ben, I mentioned some evidence suggesting that Nelson, you know, had, had, had been in, uh, in opposition to the abolition of slavery. This, I, you know, I discovered afterwards, I, I should have done my, my reading more, more thoroughly beforehand, this was actually from a letter that was discovered after his death, intimating that he was against the abolition of slavery. That letter has now been pretty roundly dismissed um, as, a, as a fabrication. The anti-abolitionists were attempting basically to appropriate the cultural clout of Nelson. They had scribbled up a letter and said, hey, this is, now, this is what Nelson was saying. And due to his death, he conveniently couldn't object to their argument. They were appropriating his cultural clout. And right now, that kind of appropriation, I think, is happening as well. I think that the movement to take down Nelson's column, which is small, but but is definitely there, is also using his story 
in its own way. It's co-opting it. I don't think it's a wish to negate or expunge the story of Nelson and Trafalgar, is what I mean, that, that they're taking down the column. They are co-opting the idea of what Nelson is. You know, he's so closely tied to the, to the, to the idea of the British nation. And I think you'd find that the people who want to take down Nelson's column are challenging that idea, the British nation, of British national greatness and of the things that happened between 1750 and 1850, you know, when the, when the British Empire is in its period of its worst successes. And attacking Nelson's column is a really effective means of, of doing that, setting that up as saying, well, this represents what we hate, let's take it down. That itself is a co-option of the story. It's a using of that story. So ultimately, there, there is a duality in this cult of, of Nelson, as I think I've just established, hopefully. Violence and fellowship civilization and brutality, benevolent father, cruel oppressor, you know, true or not, all of those things and problematic as some of those ideas are. I think this is pretty fundamental to the way that we look at statues anyway. And and I think it's it's fundamental to the current whirlwind that is surrounding them. Now, if we're talking about the actual statue, you know, the public object, the first monument to Nelson was actually built in Dublin. It's called Nelson's Pillar or the Nelson Pillar. It's now just called the Pillar, I think. And it was completed in 1809, only four years after Nelson's death, whilst Ireland was still very much a part of, of Great Britain, or of the United Kingdom, sorry, to be accurate. And in, in the middle of Dublin, Nelson's column, Nelson's pillar, takes on a really different meaning, doesn't it? I think we can see that quite clearly. And it was blown up in the 1960s by the IRA, or well, by a, a, a person who came forward as an IRA activist. So if nothing else, this demonstrates that these statues are not the people or the events that they bear a rough physical resemblance to. They are living public objects, the, the context of which endows them with meaning. And for the IRA, that column was a representation of British oppression. I, I think that's kind of fair enough, blowing up this statue, which has very obviously been put there for a, for a reason. And I think that, well, what, what makes me feel like this series maybe has been worth all this whistering and blathering is that we, I mean, that's, I, we can sort of envy the IRA for how clearly they can see what that statue means, because there's a real clarity of purpose that that will give you. Oddly, I think we actually have a, a much less clear idea of what our Nelson's column means, of what the most famous public statue in our capital means to us. Thank you very much for listening to this first series of Pedestals. This podcast is totally independent. I make it in my free time. So if you'd like to support, then please head over to my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash pedestals. Covering expenses of books and coffee and so forth would be a brilliant start. But the more support I get from you guys, the more time I can justify reading books and blathering into my microphone and making episodes. If you've got any questions at all or you want to point out any glaring errors and I, I will try to make corrections um, or if you just want to get in touch you can reach me on pedestalspodcast at gmail.com uh, Links to all of this uh, are going to be in the episode description. This podcast is written, presented and edited by me, Peter Dewhurst. A massive thank you goes out to uh, Fiona Wilson and to Brendan O'Rourke for their work on the logo, cover, illustration, whatever it's called. Uh, thanks also to all of the proper historians whose work I have cannibalised uh, and scavenged from. A uh, full list of sources is in the episode description. See you next time.